I'd like to welcome you to Lakeside and invite you to take a Bible and to open it to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 2 of Philippians. If you're using one of these Bibles, it's provided for you here in the pew. It's on page 981. 981 Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we've been going through a series at 9 o'clock on prayer um, called Prayer Together, taught by Bill Hybels from Willow Creek. And last Sunday at 9 o'clock, the opening question of the video and then of our discussion time together around small group was, if you found out you were going into emergency surgery and you wanted someone to pray for you, who would it be? And then the questions were, you know, as you think of those people that you would invite to come and to pray for you, what sort of characteristics define them as people? Why would you go to them for prayer, and that was much of the reflection that we had together at nine o'clock last Sunday. Uh, and we had that discussion for me personally, not knowing that it would be Wednesday of this week that uh, I wouldn't be going into emergency surgery, but my father would be. On Wednesday afternoon, he was diagnosed with cancer, and by Wednesday evening at 8 p.m., a four-hour surgery was begun um, on him, which went well, which he's recovering from well, uh, and recovering strong, for which we're tremendously thankful for as a family. Um, But in an ER, your cell phones don't work uh, downtown at Akron General. So uh, our ability to just step outside and and try to think through, okay, what of his siblings can we let know and who of the family can we let know so they can pray? Uh, For me, it was just a tremendous privilege um, to then, uh, once we were finally in the OR waiting room uh, where we had cell phone reception, to think, I want to let my fellow elders know. I want this surgery is happening right now and I want them to be praying And then I want them to be able to communicate it to other people uh, in the church. And so for me, just the privilege to be connected to a church and to be pastoring in a church where I feel like the the very first people that I would go to outside of my immediate family uh, are you um, to come alongside uh, me and us and our family in prayer. Just one of those 10,000 blessings uh, for which I'm thanking God for. Also, while that was going on on Wednesday, one of the times when I stepped out to make phone calls... I got a phone call from somebody who was dealing with something at about the same level in their own life that was going on uh, in what our family was dealing with, but I couldn't do anything. You know, had I gotten the phone call on any other day, I would have been able to respond in a timely manner, go be with that person and pray with them while they were dealing with what they were dealing with, but I couldn't. And I I felt very much the tension that is described here in Philippians chapter 2. So uh, just in full disclosure, sermon prep has been a lot lower this week than most typical weeks. Um, But I've lived this passage this week uh, as much as I've studied it. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and you'll pick up a bit on what I'm talking about. Here's Paul writing, and he says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering 
upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And so receive in the Lord, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And that's where we'll stop for today. Our title is Christ, Our Help. And one of the big ideas of our series has been that for us who believe that Jesus Christ is risen again as we anticipate the celebration of Easter and that we believe that he is alive and well, that he is active and working, that one of the ways that that should be evident is that we're not simply looking backwards on things that Christ has done and remembering those but we're seeking him in the present, his guidance, his wisdom, his help. We're relying on his strength because we believe he's alive and well and he's working and active. And we see this evidenced in the early church and their dependence and their expectation that he was still doing things. He was still involved in all of the details of their life and the struggles that they faced together as a community. And so Christ, our help, One of the things that we see from this passage, our first point, is how God works when life doesn't. This whole section is filled with tension, and you might have noticed it, that there's a lot that the people in here would desire to do, but for some reason are finding difficulty in doing it. Life just isn't quite working out in the way that they would hope. They have plans, they have things that they want to accomplish, but there are things that are blocking and preventing them from being able to do what it is that they want to do. For Paul, he wants to be with these people. He doesn't want to have to be writing a letter to them, but he he can't be with them, and he has to write a letter to them because he's in prison. He's in prison for his faith, writing this letter. So this church, who wishes he could be with them as well, and They can't do anything to get him out of prison. They want to send something to him. They want to send him a gift, a a financial and a physical, tangible, material gifts to him to encourage him while he's in what's kind of like a house arrest in Rome. So they send the gentleman who's referred to at the end, his name was Epaphroditus, and they say, Epaphroditus, we, we don't know a lot about him. This is the only time he's ever referred to in the New Testament. But whoever he was, he was trusted enough by the church that they gave him all the money and all the goods and sent him to Rome to go deliver all of this stuff to Paul. 
So they believed that he wouldn't just say, hey, I've got some extra cash. I'm going to take a stop in Athens and enjoy town a little bit, and then I'm going to do that. He had enough integrity that they, they thought they could send this gift with him on this journey there. We don't even know the details of exactly how and what had happened, but in the traveling, or once he got to Rome, he himself got so sick that he wasn't able just to pass it off and then go back to Philippi and report on it. So there was a longer time delay than anybody was expecting. And they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have Skype, so they couldn't be like, hey, what's going on? Well, I'm in the hospital right now, and it's going to be a little bit before I get back. They don't know. They just sent this guy out. He's got all the resources. He's supposed to get him to Paul. And we're not hearing anything. We don't know what's going on. And so Paul is sending this letter, what we believe, back with Epaphroditus because he's finally feeling well enough. God spared him. He was so sick they thought he was going to die, but he doesn't die and he restores his strength enough that that Paul can give him the letter back and say, go give this back and, and read this report to the church. So Paul would love to be with them, but he can't. Epaphroditus wanted to get this gift to him and get back. He wanted to to bless Paul, and here he shows up and he gets totally sick. And now he becomes one of Paul's biggest concerns and prayer needs, so rather than getting ministered to, he's like, ah, here's another guy I have to minister to because he's not doing well. And so in this story, there's the, in this experience, all of these people are wanting to do something that they're finding it hard to do. And even with Timothy, Paul says, I really wish I could send Timothy to you But that just can't happen yet because Paul needs Timothy. There's not a lot of people that Paul has in his inner circle while he's in prison in Rome. And so though he would love to send Timothy to Philippi, it's just going to be Epaphroditus who's going. Timothy's not going to accompany him. Hopefully things can, can, can ease up in some capacity so that eventually Paul can, can send Timothy. But at every level, with every person, there's something that they wish would happen, and then there's just the realities of what they're facing in life. For Paul, it's imprisonment. For Epaphroditus, it was sickness. For Timothy, it was, I'm needed all over the place. <laughs> Paul needs me, you need, I don't, I don't know which, I just, I can only be in one place at one time. But there are limits to what's going on. And this is one of the things that we can often have a superficial expectation and just think that if, if, what, if we finally get to the place where we decide that we're going to try to honor God and we're going to serve him, then it's going to be easy to serve him. Things are just going to happen. The, the, the things that we're needed for, we're going to be able to do, right? Because for most of us, that's like the biggest battle. Most days of the week, we'd rather just not do what God wants us to do. We have plenty of our own selfish ideas and places we want to go and people we want to see. That Most of the battle for us is just actually submitting and saying, okay, God, here I am, and I'm willing to do what you would want me to do. So that we can think, if I get to that place and I say, God, here I am, I'm willing to do whatever you want to do, so here I go, why is it so hard to do what I think is what you want me to do? Why am I in prison when I feel like I should be here? Why is Epaphroditus sick when he's supposed to be delivering the goods? And why can't Timothy go when he could be such an encouragement to them? Well, it's just the reality that life is like that. Life brings all kinds of interruptions and all kinds of challenges. And life is not simply about making plans and then seeing those plans accomplished. 
Whether we're believers in Christ or not, we're still human beings, and you don't cease to be a human being when you become a Christian. And so in the normal Christian life is still all of the experiences that come about for any and every person. Imprisonment, sickness, limitations of time, weaknesses of body, all of those things still exist. One of the reasons, though, that this isn't this doesn't undermine their faith at all is because Paul knows it's in the interruptions and it's sometimes when life doesn't work that God does his best work. It's, it's sometimes when we think we know what we're supposed to be doing and it doesn't happen and we realize how weak and limited we are that God actually comes and shows up and is our help and does the things that we never even would have thought to do. See, because Paul had no intentions of ever going to Philippi. He was happy to continue his missionary journeys in Asia, as we saw in Acts chapter 16. But it was only when he was interrupted by God to say, this isn't where I want you to go anymore. You've done your work here. I want you to head towards Europe. And had God not interrupted him, he never would have been in Philippi. There wouldn't be a church to write to. There wouldn't be believers gathered together for him to be torn about and say, I wish I could be with you, but I'm here. So this doesn't undermine his faith because if he looks at it and says, I don't understand why this is hard. I don't understand why all of these interruptions have to take place when I'm just trying to do the right thing. He knows if that was his attitude, then this whole church wouldn't exist in the first place. But God was able to do something that Paul couldn't foresee in Philippi that makes it possible for him to write this letter which gives all the indication that this is one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. And it had such a surprising beginning. Its beginning happened because God works when life doesn't. God has plans that are not our plans and he has ways that are not our ways as the prophet Isaiah said. And and we see this tension all throughout. Every description in this just short uh, few verses We see people wanting to do things that they can't quite do, but yet being totally open to the fact that maybe that's in part because God's doing something else that none of them are aware of. So from how God works when life doesn't, we see how faith works when sight doesn't. That's our second point. Once we know how God works when life doesn't, we get a sense of then how faith works when sight doesn't. It doesn't make sense that if we want to do the things that God desires to do, we struggle. One of the ways we counteract that is with something else that doesn't make sense, which is when we have every reason to complain and every reason to despair and every reason to grumble, we don't. That's what he says to them. As you've always obeyed, verse 12, not only in my absence, but not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, and do all of these things without grumbling or questioning. What? It'd be so natural for them to grumble. It'd be so natural for them to question. I mean, isn't that what we do when life isn't working out the way we think it should be working out? Well, yes, that is what's natural. So what he's saying to them is we have an opportunity as followers of Christ when life isn't working out the way we think it should 
to actually showcase the gospel in those moments better than at any other time. If we can, in response in faith, still maintain our joy and our purpose and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which is another way we translate just awe and wonder, not, not being intimidated and scared, but with awe and wonder, working out our salvation in spite of all of those interruptions, that's going to be something that makes people take notice. And, and it's precisely what he says in verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. We don't quite pick up on the imagery, but what Paul is saying is, if this ends up that I die because of this, I rejoice, I'm glad, and I rejoice with you all. Verse 18, likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Really, Paul? Even if what this means is you never get out of prison, we're supposed to rejoice? We're supposed to be glad in that? He's calling them to a response of faith that would not be a response we would have by sight because by sight, it doesn't, we're looking at it and it just doesn't make sense that Paul would be stuck in prison. It doesn't make sense that Epaphroditus would be sick. But this is what he's calling them to, to live by faith. And what that means is to still have joy and to still have gladness even when difficult circumstances come. That's what's required if we're going to do all things without grumbling or without questioning. That we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And there he's describing this gospel opportunity that they have. Look, this is the world we live in. It's crooked. It's twisted. It's dark. Bad things happen. Things don't work out sometimes. That is the context. But if in that context you want to shine as lights to the world, here's a way that you can shine. Now, one of the things we have to realize is that shining doesn't always feel like shining, right? When you think about shining, you think about, oh, I'm going out tonight, and I'm going to get dressed up, and I'm going to look good, and I'm going to shine tonight. Shining, the light of the gospel, doesn't always feel like shining. Epaphroditus was shining when he was puking from being sick. He was shining the light of the gospel when he couldn't stand on his own two feet because he was weak. And if you would have said to him, does this feel like shining? He said, I thought of another word, that wasn't it. It doesn't always feel like it. It doesn't always mean it's a smile. But what he's challenging them to do is that when they have the opportunity to grumble and question and complain and basically take the posture that, man, if I was God, I really would have figured out how to make all this stuff not happen. Because if I was God, this would be much more under control than it is right now, which is essentially what we're saying in our grumbling and complaining. I could figure out better how this should all go. I could write a better script. I could describe a better story. But he's saying if if we're going to put our faith in God and trust that some things don't make sense and some things hurt, we're glad that he's God and we're not. 
We're thankful that he is who he is and that it's not all up to us and we're not the ones who are writing the story. If that's really true, then we won't grumble and question and doubt in the way that other people do with the same kind of just pure cynicism that other people do. It doesn't mean all questions are bad. It doesn't mean being honest about what you're going on is grumbling. There's a balance between truth-telling and grumbling and just saying, you you can't pass on a prayer request without telling somebody what you're dealing with. That's not grumbling. It's, this is just what I'm dealing with. This is who's sick. This is what it is. Or this is who's mad at me. And you, you have to describe it. You have to tell the truth about it. That's not grumbling. It doesn't prevent us from talking about and describing what we're dealing with. But the challenge is to go above and beyond whatever those circumstances are and to rest in God, to believe that he's big enough, to believe that he's strong enough and that when we can't be in two places at one time, he can. He can be in a million places at one time, at the same time. That's why we're glad he's God and we are not. And that's the response of faith when sight doesn't work. And then in all of this, the plan and the purpose and the goal is that we would see how grace works when sin doesn't. So first, how God works when life doesn't, and then how faith works when sight doesn't. Ultimately, that this together would get people to a place that they would see how grace works when sin doesn't. We've talked about this before throughout this series, but it is exactly Paul's attitude as he's writing these verses and able to live out his faith in this way that is leading to the conversion of the jailers who are responsible for his care. They're watching him every day. They're looking at him. And they know what he's going through. And they're seeing how grace, Paul's understanding of God's grace in his own life is working itself out and that it's working in a way that sin never does. See, the way that sin works is when you get it, you're not happy with it. The the, the nature of lust in our hearts, whether it's for fame, whether it's for uh, money, whether it's for relationships, whatever it is, the way that lust works is the moment we get what it is we think we want, we become discontent with it and we don't want it anymore. And so we're drawn to something more and we're drawn to something more and that's how addictions develop because what we had no longer satisfies and we need more and we're just driven further and further down a road and we realize sin doesn't work. I never satisfy sin by acting on it. Never once gotten rid of a desire by acting on its impulse. I just want it again and I want more of it. And the way that grace works when it's fully formed in our hearts and we realize all that we have in Christ, that we can have contentment with the things that we want but we don't have. We can look at things in our life that say, yeah, that would be good to have and that would be good to have, but you know what? I have enough of God's grace that even when those things aren't a part of my story and bad news comes and difficult circumstances come my way, I can actually have joy without the things that I really want, whereas when I operate in sin, I don't have joy when I get the things that I want. Do you see the difference between those two? And that's what Paul's living out for them. There's plenty of things he would love to be able to do that he can't do, but none of it is stealing his joy. None of it is stealing his purpose. And so these 
these prison guards, as they're watching him, these people as in Philippi, as they're going to read this letter, they're going to say, wow, that is how grace works. And grace does work in a way that's different than sin. And that's the light of the gospel shining. And that's what makes people want to know, who is this God that you so rely on, that is your help in any and every circumstance, that though you're going through what you're going through, you don't seem to be shaken. Your joy remains. Your purpose remains. And that happens when Christ is not just some person in history that we're looking backwards on, celebrating something he did, but when in the present, he so shapes our attitude with the things that we're facing that people see the confidence that we have in him and that we really believe he's right next to us going through whatever we're going through and that he's not thrown off by all the things that we're thrown off by, that he's really there, that he's alive, that he's a well, that he's working, that he's planning, that he's converting other people because he is our help. And that's where the first word came from in our section. Verse 12, what was the first word? Therefore, as I heard someone once say, it's a conjunction. So whenever you see a therefore, ask, what's it there for? It's there right after what he had said in verses 6 through 12. We can have this attitude, therefore, when we really believe that it's Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We just stopped there. What? Did life work for him in, in the way that we think about it? No, but in some way, God planned and purposed that all of that would be the very means by which you and I would be saved and that he would be exalted. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Therefore, when life doesn't work, believe that God still is, because that's what happened with Jesus. When, the, when our sight seems to say, this is horrible, this is gone, there's no hope, there's no future, faith says, I think, that, I think this is how it's gonna happen. I think this is actually the climax of the story. Don't count him out yet. Nothing's dead yet. Even if he dies, he can rise again. So don't put him in the grave. You can try, but he's going to come out of that grave. And when someone wants to look at the circumstances of your life or mine and say, you know what, there's no hope for you. You might as well be dead. We can say in faith, I know someone who rose from the dead. I know someone for whom death is not a problem. And there's nothing I'm dealing with. There's no situation that I will encounter that he does not have the help to give me to get through it and to shine and to rejoice in because it was for the joy that was set before him. Isn't that the language of Hebrews 12? That he endured the cross. And that's the kind of attitude that Paul longs to see lived out in the Philippians, to see lived out in his own life and then every church thereafter that we would apply this mind of Christ, that's where chapter two opens up, that we would live out our faith 
like him so that people would watch us live it out and ask questions about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word which points us back to the sufficiency of your grace and your plans and your purposes for our life and for our circumstances. We thank you for the reminder that you are alive and well and working and present to help us in every situation and circumstance that we face. I just pray for anyone here who, because of the difficulties that life has brought, because of the challenges that they have wandered away from you rather than running to you, that through your spirit, Father, you would just help all of us to see that running from you never solves anything, that running towards sin never satisfies anything, that real, lasting, pure joy and freedom only comes in clinging to you and seeking your face no matter what. And so we just pray that through your spirit you would instill your truth into our hearts and through our hearts into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.